season of the Pentecost season taught us so much through John's letter. And we pray that the great truths would go deeper into our hearts as your people, that we may be certain of the things we've been taught. Take our minds now and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys notice that pickup trucks are getting really huge? I mean, I remember riding around in Moultrie with my Uncle Earl and my cousin Don. We rode in the Ford F-150. It was just kind of standard truck. But these things are massive these days. I had to turn in my Ram truck, which we affectionately called Big Red, because there's times I need Kim to be able to drive it. If I have to take her car to the shop or something like that, she has to take my truck. Well, the Ram seat didn't go up and in, and so she couldn't see over the front. I said, we well, need to get you a phone book, darling, and you can sit on the phone book, you know? Uh, so I, the lease was up, and I went to Marky Mark Chevrolet over here in Avon, where a young Jordan salesman all slicked up, ready to sell this naive old guy a truck. And I said, well, that's all, I've done my research. I'm going to get a Chevy LT. They were on the website. But guess what? If it's on the website, it doesn't mean it's in stock. And they had one Chevy Colorado on the lot but it wasn't just any Chevy Colorado. It's the Chevy ZR2 Colorado. The ZR2 is the top of the line Chevy truck, whether you're buying a Colorado or a Silverado, it is decked out, leather seats, Bose speakers, I mean, all the bells and whistles, and I really don't need it, but I bought it. You know, and so this salesman, you know, is, is talking to me about the virtues of this truck, which my granddaughter affectionately calls now Bluey. And it's really cool. It's a cool looking truck. It, it's a billy goat. It can climb rocks and everything. And he goes, well, you can take this out and take it out in the fields. And I go, I don't do that. I, I don't do any of it. You know, I just need to go to church. <laughs> That's all I do. I just get there. So if there's three feet of snow, guess what, folks? We're going to gather on Sundays <laughs> because I'm not getting stuck because this truck won't get stuck. And, he, and he, as we're signing the papers, he goes, do you realize what you have? You have the Corvette of, of pickup trucks. And I'm like, great, super. I just won't get stuck. That's what matters to me. And so John is wrapping up today so that you, dear brethren, may not get stuck in the swamp of uncertainty, because so many do, and he wants to make sure not only you and me and all his followers have confidence to live the confident Christian life. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to 1 John 5 as we wrap this series up today. Last week we saw the testimonies of God. John was just reinforcing the eyewitness accounts of who Christ is. And we can be confident in this testimony. 
And so then he writes the purpose statement of the entire letter, letter in verse 13. And what we learn in these passages is that, one, we can have assurance of our salvation. Two, that we can have confidence in prayer. And three, that we as Christians have a threefold understanding that the world doesn't have. All right? Number one, confidence of assurance, uh, confidence of our salvation, assurance of our salvation. Two, confidence in answer prayer. And three, a threefold understanding that the world does not have. So let's look at this. First, assurance of eternal life. Verse 13, he gives us the purpose for the whole letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Did you know you can know that you have eternal life? You can know that you're saved. You don't have to doubt about it, guess about it, or wonder about it. I'm glad I don't have to live in the fog on this one. Verse 13 is a strategic verse in the entire letter because it gives us the purpose for his writing. When we receive a letter, we want to know who wrote it and why he or she wrote it. And yet some people today in the church believe that you cannot know with certainty that you're a Christian. According to them, you just have to wait to find out until you die whether you're a real Christian or not. That's the Muslim belief. Muslims believe that you cannot know in this life whether you're acceptable to Allah or not. And John, remember, who's the beloved disciple, eyewitness testimony, that which we've seen, that which we've turned, uh, touched, that's what we have heard, throws an absolute hand grenade into the swamp of uncertainty, blowing it to smithereens. God does not want his children to worry, doubt, or lack assurance that they have salvation or whether they're Christians or not. We've seen in this series all the various tests of faith, right? We've seen the test of love for the church, the love of the brethren. Do you love other Christians? We've seen the test of righteousness. In other words, do you desire to abide in the Lord, walk in his ways, grow in that? That's the test of right believing. Have you believed that Jesus is the Son of God, as the Scripture say, says? And if you pass these tests, you're a Christian. But verse 13 implies that it's possible to be truly saved and yet not have assurance of your salvation. Such lack of assurance robs you of your joy. It arrests your spiritual growth. And it cripples your ministry in the body and outside the body. So your assurance of salvation is an important thing to know. Spurgeon wrote, we should not have been commanded to give diligence to make our salvation and election sure if it were not right for us to be sure. John wrote his gospel, remember, chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he writes his letter so that you may know you have eternal life. And having an assurance of your salvation is crucial to your spiritual health and your growth. Bishop Ryle in the 19th century said, faith is the root and assurance is the flower. So what are the things, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What are these things? Well, it's everything we just talked about, right? The whole letter is about the test of having 
faith in Jesus Christ. Growing obedience to Christ, a love for Christ, abiding in him, and as a love for his church. If you believe those things and are growing in those things, not perfectly, but you're growing in them, that's sanctification, you have eternal life. And because we have such assurance, we can approach the God who is in prayer. Verse 14 and 15. When he continues, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This is crucial, that we have the confidence. Notice, it's, it's confidence. John is trying to point out that assurance and confidence in our salvation leads us to confidence that God answers our prayers. If anyone were to say they had known a person who was trustworthy for 30 years and yet doubted him, it would not be very credible. When we have known God for a considerable time, it verifies his existence as we speak to him in prayer. So when I'm doing my annual Bible reading, I'm in the book of Acts now, and it never ceases to amaze me how bold the early church prayed. The Christians of the early church were men and women who knew how to pray. We can learn from them. Notice that in verse 14, that we have confidence toward him. It's not, not confidence in us, it's confidence toward him. And that confidence is built on our access to God. The Bible says that in prayer we approach God with confidence. And that we have immediate contact with him in Jesus Christ. God will never ghost you when you call him. Wherever we are, we have immediate contact with God by prayer. Though heaven's lines are never jammed when we call, sometimes we can block God's calls by our sinful actions and our sinful lives. Some of us are still in the kindergarten or elementary school of prayer. Some of us are in the middle school or high school of prayer. But I'm here to tell you that nobody ever graduates from the university of prayer. We have confidence that we can come to him in prayer. We've seen this word before. The Greek word literally means all speech and hence boldness. God wants us to have boldness before him. In Hebrews 4.16, the author writes, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace of, to help in time of need. So when it comes to prayer, friends, we should have confidence that if we pray and ask for something in God's will, he hears us. So here are the, some of the questions to think about. Just think about our own prayer lives. Did, did Jesus help hurting people during his earthly ministry? Yes, he did. Did he heal people who were sick? Yes, he did. Did he correct people who were wrong in their thinking about him? Yes, he did. Did, he, did you think that that and all much more that Jesus did in his earthly life, he desires to do today? Yes, he does. Do you believe that he desires to help you in your time of need? Yes, he does. Does he desire to guide you when you need direction? Yes, he does. 
does he want to help you when you're hurting? Of course. Unlike his earthly ministry, Jesus is not physically with us now. So how does he go about doing these things? He does these things through prayer. Prayer is the God-ordained way we get what we need. It's not the power of positive thinking, uh, spiritual self-hypnosis, or any such thing. Prayer is a spiritually real and vibrant two-way conversation with the real God who has a real love for us and gives real answers to us according to his will. Did you catch that? According to his will. God is not going to give you a blank check for your prayers any more than you would give a blank check to your children when they are all the requests they have. If you're a parent, would you give your child everything they ask for in their Christmas list? There are many things I would like to have. In addition to my truck, I've always wanted a Shelby Mustang GT. But God has not seen fit to give me one, and I suspect that if I were to ask for one in prayer, he would chuckle. I do not need one. Though I would like to own one, I need one about as much as I need a hole in my head. God is not going to answer all our wants and our greeds. And he does promise he will answer according to our needs, according to his will. So learning to pray according to his will is quite important, is it not? So let's take a few minutes to talk about that. To pray in the will of God, we have to discern the will of God. Because it's one thing to be willing to do God's will, but we need to discern God's will in our lives. Many people think discerning the will of God is one of the most difficult things we have to do. But it need not be so. God does give us two great helps. The first one is obviously his word. The Bible, the written word, has given us so much that we can discern his will in our lives. God's will for our lives will never contradict the word. He, his will is always in conformity with his word. And when God gives clear direction in his word, that narrows the scope of our praying. For example, suppose a young woman falls in love with a handsome, very promising young man who's not a Christian. She wants to marry him. But she, being a Christian, she knows that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, that she is not to be unequally yoked with a non-believer. So should she pray and ask God if it is his will for her to marry this man? No. Because God has already made his will in that situation explicit for every Christian. There are some things you don't need to pray for because God has already made it clear for the follower of Christ. The first place to go to determine what is and what is not in God's will is the word of God, the Bible. Let's do that. Secondly, in addition to having the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit who dwells each and every one of us. Let's face it. God's word doesn't answer every scenario in human life. It just doesn't. And as Paul says in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit guides us in our prayers, and sometimes we don't even know how to pray. And we can rely on the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf. Prayer that gets answered is prayer that originates with God, not with us. And third, to pray in the will of God, we have to be willing to do the will of God. We have to settle that 
first and foremost. And every time we have to do the will of God, it will result in a crisis of belief. Always. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. So before you go and you want to pray the will of God, make sure you're willing to do the will of God as he answers. When we have prayed in faith the will of God, and we pray all those three points align, John is saying the check's in the mail. God's answer is coming. Look at the first use of have in verse 15 when John says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. It is in the present tense in the Greek. You may not have the answer immediately, but God has already answered it in his timing. He will send it to you. And that's the confidence we can have. We know at Christ Church of what John speaks, right? He hears our prayers. There's the assurance that he will answer our prayers. And he will answer either yes, no, wait, or I have something better for you. And in the building search, it took us 11 years. And we are more mature. We know God more. We rejoice in who we are in Christ more. And we don't know how the Lord will use this facility for his glory in generations to come. But he answered our prayers every day of 11 years as we whined, oh, God, give us a building. He has. Praise God. Better than we ever could have asked. Martin Luther had a good friend named Frederick Myconius who was a great helper during the Reformational period. Myconius in 1540 became so ill he was on his deathbed. And so lying there, he wrote his last letter to Martin Luther with a trembling hand saying, Martin, I'm not going to make it. This is my goodbye. And so Luther immediately dispatched a reply to him with these words in typical Martin Luther fashion. He writes, I command you in the name of God to live because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear while I live that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying, and this is my will, and may my will be done because I seek only to glorify the name of God. <laughs> Those are shocking words. When Myconius received Luther's reply, he was so far gone, he had lost his ability to speak. But remarkably, he recovered completely. And he lived six more years to assist in the reformational efforts throughout Germany, and he outlived Luther by two months. Now, God answered the believing prayer of Martin Luther for his friend Myconius, and I would not recommend using such language. Uh, Luther was clearly willing to state in his letter to his friend that this is my will and may my will be done. But of course, Luther believed he was praying in the will of God as his last statement, because I, li I live only for the glory of God. As Christians, we need to know that God answers our prayers. Sometimes we pray with such tentativeness. 
when we really should have the confidence in the will of God. And so we pray for our own prayers, and then in verse 16 and 17, it turns to others. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in self-centered praying in which we constantly ask for our own needs but never go to God on behalf of others. There is certainly a time to pray for our needs, but as the Bible has much to say about prayer and intercession for others, John singles out a specific example that's happening in the early church about how we can pray for others. And here, he's praying for Christians who have gotten involved in sin. He's already affirmed in this letter that Christians can and do sin. Amen? Uh, he's already addressed the issue for the sinning believer in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. I encourage you to go back and read that this afternoon. But here he's addressing the issue of our praying for fellow Christians who are currently in sin. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Apparently, John's readers knew what he was talking about. <laughs> but we're, we are left somewhat in the dark about it. John doesn't explain what he means by the phrase, sin that leads to death. He's using the word brother here. So he's speaking about a, a, bro a fellow believer. And so apparently John is talking about the possibility that a Christian can sin in such a way that God would choose to take that Christian out of this world prematurely by physical death. There is evidence of this in Scripture. And, and this also is not the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other discussion. If you, We can drink coffee or, or lemonade. I don't know if I want any coffee. Um, but but um, we can talk about it after the service, all right? It's not that discussion. This is a believer who's actively unconfessing sin, and God just takes him out of the world by a variety of means. You have in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They're in the church. They believe. They think they're hiding from God because there's people coming forward giving lots of money to the church, selling land, and they go, oh, we're going to sell our land, but we'll keep some of it, but we'll tell them what we sold. And it wasn't consistent. What did God do? He took them both. They became notorious in the community. And we're affecting the witness of the community, and God took them. There's also 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 30, when Paul is talking about uh, unworthy reception of communion. We do the, the uh, exhortation a few times a year, reminding ourselves that we need to pay attention to unconfessed sin in our lives. Because Paul is saying in Corinth that some people, the Lord has taken because they're not confessing their sins and it's affecting the witness of the whole church to the community. You might say that John's sin that leads to death in the life of a believer is something like a dishonorable discharge. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation, but John does not tell us what that sin that leads to death is. John says that God will give life to those who have not sinned 
a sin that leads to death. And most likely he's not talking about specific sin, but has to do with an ongoing, unconfessed sin to the point that God takes a drastic action. John's desire is that we not focus on the specific of the sins that lead to death, but rather focus on the notion of sin not leading to death. This is what we are to pray about. God desires to forgive sins, and he desires intercessors to pray for Christians when they sin. Remember what Samuel said in his book. He said, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you sorry people. That's the implication there in 1 Samuel 12. In the church, we need to be praying for one another, even in our struggles. Jesus prayed for Peter who knew that he would deny him. And he says, Satan wants to take you, but I am praying for you, Peter. Even after Peter denied Jesus, Peter did repent. Jesus restored him. And Peter had a victorious Christian life, preaching the gospel, writing two books of the Bible, and died as a martyr, all because our Lord prayed for him. When we sin, we need intercessors to come alongside of us who will pray for us. Christians need people who will love them enough to pray for them during their spiritual downtimes. Christians in such a condition need to be prayed back to the point of spiritual health and vitality. So don't just sit there, pray for somebody, okay? Because we don't have all knowledge. We can just, just know people are struggling with things and we just need to pray for them. And take them to the Lord. So we have assurance of our salvation. We can have confidence in prayer. And we are given threefold knowledge of issues that the world can't understand. First, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but who has been born of God, God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. When you are born of God, when you are a new creation, as John has been writing about, we have the ability to have a successful Christian life and overcome this problem of sin day by day as we walk with Christ. In other words, what I used to love, I now hate. And what I used to hate, I now love. We're, and we're growing in it. Not perfectly. But we are perfect in Christ, and we grow in that day by day as we walk with Jesus and serve him. The second knowledge we have is not only is there a certainty of God's power, but there's certainty of our position. Verse 19, we know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, this is nothing new. John is simply revisiting what he's already written. He's already told us in chapter 3, verse 10, that everyone lives in one of two spiritual families, the family of God or the family of the enemy. John indicates that his readers, who were once unbelievers, are now in him. They were part of the world, but that's no longer the case. 1 John 5 and 18 makes the point that the whole world, all living unbelievers, are under the sway of the devil. So therefore, we can be certain of our position in Christ's family because we've trusted Christ. And last, the third certainty concerns our perception. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. It's who he is. Saved people have a spiritual understanding and discernment that unsaved people just don't have. Just as there is certainty of Christian perception, there is also a certainty of spiritual sight. We're not fooled by the spiritual AI that's out there trying to delude us. Our spiritual perception is based on the understanding that Christ himself has given us. We discern truth because we know him who is true. John has been offering us the truth, Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's as if John is saying, this God whom I've been reaffirming all throughout this letter, that Jesus Christ is God's sole revealer. And of whom I've been declaring and that through him we may know God and dwell abidingly in him and that there is no one else. He is the true God. And this is eternal life. John began this letter in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 talking about eternal life. So where does he end the letter? Eternal life. It's about knowing him who is true and being in him who is true. And that is eternal life. Knowing God and being in Christ. And John says, we better know that we know. I have no confidence in my own confidence. I place no reliance upon my own assurance. My assurance lies upon the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. I believe him. Most of you believe him. There might be a few of you who are wobbling. I commend him to you. Come and believe with us. And know that you have eternal life. And then because of all this understanding, our 95-year-old John sitting there with his cane, says, little children, refrain from idolatry. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Because idolatry changes. It was different in the first century than it is today. Again, what's an idol? An idol is something that's good that becomes something ultimate. And in our day, I see the idols as the idol of comfort. In our culture, it's the striving to never be uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters, when you follow God, you will be uncomfortable. It's the normal experience of the Christian life. You, you can have two and a half inches grass if you want, minus three inches, thank you very much. But it's not a pursuit for a perfect yard or a perfect hedges and the perfect suburban life. It's about following Christ and joining him with the work that he's doing around us. And when we do that, we'll be uncomfortable. Two. The next idol is approval. When we follow Christ, there will come a time where not everyone will think we're so awesome. If everybody's your friend, there's a problem. It's just a fact. Oh, we don't search out enemies by any stretch of the imagination, but we seek the approval of God over all rather than our neighbors. Third, the idol of pride. Our nation was built on independence, and we've come to a point of cultural pride 
where people are unteachable. They're not open to the, 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 the commands of God and the work of God in their lives. No, my friends, let us be people of humility and love. And finally, I see the idol of control. Having to put all the chess pieces of my life in order so that I can conquer life and live life the way I design. Well, I don't know about you, but God throws curveballs on that chessboard, knocks all those pieces around, and it doesn't look anything like my initial setup. So let's just give up the control and say, Lord, you take the wheel. You're Lord. I'm not. In closing, in 1994, Northwest Airlines offered some rather unusual round-trip tickets. $59, $59 bought you a mystery ticket to take you anywhere for a weekend across the United States. But you wouldn't find out until you got to the counter. First come, first serve. So as you can imagine, the airline had plenty of takers. In Indianapolis, 1,500 people turned up for their mystery fare tickets. Um, not surprisingly, not all buyers were thrilled with their destinations. <laughs> One buyer was hoping for a tic to New ticket to New Orleans because he wanted to go to Mardi Gras, and he ended up going in March. Was it March? I don't know. I think it was. I think it was March. There was, it was during Lent or right before that time. Mardi Gras was there. He wanted to go to New Orleans. He got a, a round-trip ticket to Minneapolis. <laughs> he walked through the Indianapolis airport saying, free ticket, free ticket to the Mall of America. I'll trade it for anywhere. Mystery fair tickets might be a fun surprise for a weekend, but normally the last thing you want to do is a ticket to a mystery destination, right? And one time, you never want a mystery ticket is the day of your death. You also don't want a mystery ticket today in life. God has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and John has been screaming at us for five months now, that which I've seen, that which I have heard, that which I have touched, I commend him to you. You don't want to face today or tomorrow uncertain about your standing with the living God. Be sure that you are really sure. We can trust it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this journey we've had these few months, just recognizing that we can know that we know. And we can be certain that we have eternal life in you, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that assurance, and we pray that we would walk with confidence this life, encouraging one another and any others whom we meet about the reality of your love for not only us, but for them, that you are the God who is, and that by knowing you, we can follow you and join you in the work you're doing around us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.